Hey everyone, due to the fact that it contained a factual error, I took the original version of this episode down off of the podcast feed and YouTube. And that was some time ago, with the promise of re-uploading a corrected version. Well, it looks like I've finally gotten around to it, and all it took was a pandemic. And speaking of that, I know not everyone's into these offbeat episodes on, shall we say, occult topics, but I plan on making the best of all this pandemic-related downtime to produce more content, and I'm going to try to get around to providing a more standard atheist-geared episode tomorrow, today being the 30th of April 2020, Anno Domini. Anyway, so the error in this episode, error singular, I'm hoping there's not more than one, was pointed out to me by a YouTube viewer, and I believe, uh, relatively speaking, it was a rather small mistake, but I still don't like leaving something up if it contains any sort of factual errors or inaccuracies. So I'm just going to listen back to the original episode and jump in when it's time to issue a correction. Okay, here we go. Having been a kid back in the 80s, I'm old enough to remember the so-called satanic panic. The paranoia, metal bands accused of devil worship and backwards masking, daycare school employees accused of ritual sex abuse, the general anxiety caused by anything that smacked of the occult. A main target of Christian groups was the paper and pencil based fantasy game Dungeons and Dragons. I myself had dabbled in the game off and on throughout my youth. First as a small child who was too young to grasp the finer points of the game to the consternation and annoyance of the older kids with which I was playing. I remember laughingly insisting on naming my character Alpo Gainsberger and that he must, despite the handicap of being human, be covered in a coat of shaggy dog-like fur. Yes, probably not too surprisingly, I was indeed a weird kid. Years later, when I was in high school, I would be invited to play again. I remember that my decision to accept the offer didn't come without a price. There was a kind of unfair dual social stigma that could accompany being a D&D player. In the eyes of normie culture, it was a game embraced by socially awkward nerds or devil-worshipping malcontents. I had done a pretty good job of striking up and maintaining friendships with peers from various cliques, including with some of the most popular kids in school, but I can remember the visible disdain that flashed across one or two faces of the jock elite at the mention of Dungeons & Dragons. To be honest, I appreciated the game well enough, but sitting around running campaigns with others, I could always kind of take or leave. What I really liked were two things. One was the character creation process. Fleshing out a hero, bringing a character to life, rolling the dice to determine his or her attributes, trying to sketch their likeness as you saw it in your head in the blank portrait box. And the other thing is, and this is something I can still really enjoy to this day, is simply flipping through something like a monster manual, drinking in the lurid illustrations of creatures and monsters, many inspired or taken directly from various mythological traditions. And it's funny, in a sense, those paranoid Christians who were so vocal during the satanic panic may have been right in a way. 
Dungeons and Dragons did in fact further my interest in demonology and the occult, but whereas they probably feared the game would literally lead children to come into contact with demonic forces or paranormal activity, for me it just fueled my pre-existing hunger for knowledge. It fed my love of mythology, ancient history, and all things weird and lurid. I remember I was particularly fond of the book Deities and Demigods, later rebranded as Legends and Lore. And in this particular text was a section of what I guess could be called the aristocracy of hell or the lower realms or plains. And that's where I first learned of the infamous Demogorgon. Yeah, so right there, that was a big steaming pile of, uh-oh, got it wrong. Obviously, I wasn't trying to be deceptive. It was just one of those times when you feel certain about something. And then you find out after the fact that your memory failed you. I had this seemingly clear memory of reading about Demogorgon and other so-called demon lords in the, uh, the book Deities and Demigods as a kid. But as the aforementioned viewer rightly pointed out in the comments section when the original version of this episode was still up, the Dungeons and Dragons version of the fearsome mythical being Demogorgon appears in the 1977 Monster Manual, not in Deities and Demigods. I'm not sure if the viewer mentioned this as well, but Demogorgon actually made his first appearance alongside fellow demon lord Orcus a year earlier in a supplemental text entitled Eldritch Wizardry. And for my listeners and viewers who don't really know or care to know anything about Dungeons and Dragons, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm completely nerding out on you here. But anyway, there may be one more correction down the line, but uh, for now, let's continue. And this reminds me of something that I touched on in that recent Tundle documentary. It seems to be the case that often hell and its potential inhabitants seem to capture the imagination more than the relatively boring, stereotypical Christian bookstore imagery of angels playing harps on clouds, etc., and my young friends and I were definitely fascinated by the creatures we found in those Dungeons and Dragons manuals, especially the more demonic ones, including the demon lords of the abyss. Demogorgon in particular seemed to be a, a common favorite. That being said, I think it's safe to say that none of us actually believed in the literal existence of any of these creatures, but being something of what younger listeners might now refer to as edgelords, we did enjoy darkly joking about these entities and invoking their names throughout the course of the day, Hail Demogorgon, that sort of thing. And of course, thanks to the hit Netflix series Stranger Things, Demogorgon has become something of a household name. Now, I think it's safe to say that the Stranger Things concept of Demogorgon, or the Demogorgon as I believe he's referred to in the show, bears little resemblance to its D&D counterpart. And personally, I think the actual D&D version is much, much cooler. So in Dungeons & Dragons lore, Demogorgon is basically a gigantic, bipedal, fork-tailed demon prince with tentacles for arms and two baboon or mandrel heads sitting upon twin serpentine necks. So here's a verbatim description from Deities and Demigods. Eh, wrong again. The description I'm about to read is actually from, yes... You guessed it, the Monster Manual. I just assumed the description was coming from deities and demigods because that's where I wrongly thought, uh, you know, Demogorgon made his, uh, his big appearance. Okay. It is contended by some that this demon prince is supreme 
And in any event, he is awesome in his power. The gigantic demon is 18 feet tall and reptilian. Demogorgon has two heads which bear the visages of evil baboons, or perhaps mandrels, with the hideous coloration of the latter-named beast. His blue-green skin is plated with snake-like scales. His body and legs are those of a giant lizard. His twin necks resemble snakes, and his thick tail is forked. Rather than having arms, he has great tentacles. His appearance testifies to his command of cold-blooded things, such as serpents, reptiles, and octopi. The 2002 D&D manual Book of Vile Darkness describes Demogorgon roughly the same as he's always been depicted, but then they seem to make the very strange and arbitrary choice of giving him, shall we say, since I think they also describe him as being hermaphroditic, hyena rather than baboon or mandrel heads. I really don't get the decision. Demogorgon was already a well-established character that had been around for decades, and that was already wildly popular with players and fans. So why make such an unnecessary change to his appearance? But I do appreciate this added bit, and this is just a reworded synopsis I found. The full description can be found in the aforementioned Book of Vile Darkness. His two heads have individual minds, called Amiel, the left head, and Hathradia, the right head, one of Demogorgon's best-kept secrets, even from his cultists and minions, is that his two personas strive to dominate and even kill each other, but are unable to because they are aspects of one another. So where did the concept of Demogorgon come from? Well, Demogorgon, as he appears in the lore of Dungeons & Dragons, was supposedly conceived of by Gary Gygax, the game's creator, along with business partner and fellow game designer Brian Bloom. But the name can be traced back to antiquity. The modern scholarly consensus seems to be that it probably stems from a misreading or mistranslation of the Greek word demiorgon, the accusatory case form of the Greek demiorgos, meaning something to the effect of artisan or craftsman. It's where, by way of the Latin demiurgus, that we get the modern English word demiurge. And so this just jogged my memory. It might seem a bit nitpicky, but while I'm here correcting things, I might as well stop and take care of this as well. The word modern is relative. The use of that specific variant of the word, demiurge, supposedly dates back to the early 17th century. That's what I meant by quote-unquote modern. Okay. In Gnostic belief, the demiurge was a, at best, confused, misguided, or even insane, and at worst, outright malevolent, lesser godlike creator being, who made the world of matter in which spirit or the divine spark became entrapped. Beyond this corrupt artisan of the material world lay the true God. According to Christian Gnostic teaching, Jesus came from the true God to save men from the material bondage of the demiurge. Early church father Marcion of Senape, as well as some Gnostic sects, identified the demiurge with the God of the Old Testament. The misreading or mistranslation that would give rise to the name Demogorgon supposedly comes from a commentary on Statius's epic Latin poem, the Thebaid, attributed to 4th century author Lactantius Placidus. To quote art historian Jean Sesnick, Demogorgon is a grammatical error become God. In the Thebaid, Statius mentions a supreme being of the threefold world. The commenter in the text attributed to Lactantius says, He is speaking of the Demogorgon, the supreme God, whose name it is not permitted to know. 
The exact word in question, sitting in for what would be translated as demogorgon, varies between manuscript traditions. The idea of demogorgon as a powerful demon or primordial pagan deity, whose name was taboo, became firmly fixed by the time of the late Middle Ages. Renaissance texts feature such titles as demon-gorgon, terror demon, or god of the earth. 16th century physician, occultist, and demonologist Johann Ware called Demogorgon the master of fate in Hell's hierarchy. Demogorgon as a powerful primordial being or member of Hell's aristocracy would capture the imaginations of several prominent poets and authors, from John Milton's Paradise Lost, Orcus and Aedes, and the dreaded name of Demogorgon, from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, a bold bad man that dared to call by name Great Gorgon, Prince of Darkness and Dead Night, at which Cocytus quakes and Styx is put to flight. And down in the bottom of the deep abyss, where Demogorgon and dull darkness pent, far from the view of gods and heaven's bliss, the hideous chaos keeps, their dreadful dwelling is. Famous Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire alludes to Demogorgon as the Demiurge, the idea of the Demiurge actually predating Christian Gnosticism. Alright, I have to stop here, too. I remember upon listening back to the episode, after it was already published, this part really bothered me, and I think I may have even addressed it at the beginning of the following episode. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's not necessarily right either. Once or twice I employ the term Christian Gnosticism, seeming to imply that there were different types of Gnosticism, some non-Christian. There certainly were numerous different Gnostic sects, but it's thought that what we call Gnosticism arose out of the, out of the Jewish Christian milieu of the first century. So it probably would have been better if I had employed the term Gnostic Christianity, because there certainly were forms of Christianity that were not Gnostic, and even held Gnostic teachings to be heretical, what we would now, you know, perhaps call proto-Orthodox sects. In fairness, the exact origins of Gnosticism are still a bit murky. It is thought to be a bit of a syncretic stew containing a number of different influences and systems, Neoplatonism, Zoroastrianism, and I think older scholars did try to suggest that it may have arisen out of Persia. Well, others refuted this idea. Some have even tried to draw a link between Gnosticism and Eastern religions, including Buddhism. But we know once again that it did really seem to take shape within the Jewish Christian milieu. And man, do I hate saying milieu. Is it milieu or milieu? Either way, sounds pretentious. Anyway, so I guess whether or not it's alright to say Christian Gnosticism depends on whether or not you think you could have Gnosticism without Christianity. Once again, probably would have been safer for me to just say Gnostic Christianity. Okay, that might be the last correction or clarification. If so, I hope you enjoy what's left of the episode. Having roots in pre-Christian Greek philosophy, in his short story Plato's Dream, Voltaire describes him as a quote-unquote lesser superbeing, responsible for creating the earth. 19th century poet Percy Bysshe Shelley mentions Demogorgon in his lyrical drama Prometheus Unbound, depicting the character as a kind of Luciferian hero who ultimately overthrows his father Jupiter. 
In Melville's Moby Dick, Starbuck refers to the titular character in relation to the heathen crew. The white whale is their demogorgon. A mysterious being whose name is not to be spoken, a primordial god or powerful demon in Hell's hierarchy. It's probably now easy to see how this somewhat ill-defined figure with the ominous name would eventually find its way into the pop culture fantasy world of role-playing games and sci-fi horror shows like Stranger Things. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of The Week in Doubt, and if you'd like to learn more about Gnosticism, I recently re-released my mini-doc, The Secret World of the Gnostics. Just look for it in the podcast feed. As always, thanks for listening.